0: Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference 2012 podcast. This podcast series features recordings of papers from the conference, which took place in University College Dublin on the 31st of August and 1st of September 2012. The conference was generously supported by UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research and the Society for Renaissance Studies. For more information, go to Arland.com. In this episode, a paper by Dr Mark Hutchinson of University College Cork, His paper was entitled, Governing in a State of Grace, Reformed Theology and Status Thought in Elizabethan Ireland. Um, So in this paper, um, I want to look in the main at um, the Lord Deputorship of um, John Perrot from uh, 1584 to 1588. And in this paper, I want to examine a shift in reform plans in Ireland away from a godly model of government towards the application of the secular state theories of Machiavelli, Baudin and others. Now, first of all, I should probably begin by telling you what I mean by a godly model of government. Um, this rules out of my um, doctoral research on uh, Henry Sidney's um, two periods in office, um, where I suggest that um, religious reformation and the dissemination of God's word um, was thought as the critical factor in the reform of the island um, to civil obedience. That um, the inability or, um, of an English model of government, of English law and custom to affect proper civil obedience or stability throughout um, the Irish polity was understood in terms of reformed theology. That man, being born in sin and without free will, lacked the ability to effect his own reform and come to know the wider good. But I challenge or I raise questions about Canny and Bradshaw's um, interpretation which suggests that from this we move into immediately coercive practice. Instead what I argue is that Sidney was to look to evangelism, to look to the action of God's grace on, man con- on man's conscience to bring the Irish to know what was good and the common good and that he was to argue that they would come to know, this, know God's grace through the dissemination of God's word. However... By the 1570s and early 1580s, Irish government correspondence, which had been dominated by a discussion over grace and conscience, starts to be dominated by a wider status discussion. We have the use of the term state to, um, um, uh, to express both the idea that the authority of government in Ireland is absolute and so distinct from a wider polity, which is deemed corrupt, and the assumption that that authority was also inherent in the offices or apparatus of state. Now, the peculiar constitutional nature of the Irish kingdom and its distance from Elizabeth explains, in part, why certain aspects of these status um, assumptions are made about the nature of authority in Ireland. Though that's a separate discussion, but the question which I want to ask here is why a set of religiously inspired reformers in Ireland were to become so involved in a discussion over where political or sovereign authority lay in the Irish state. And what I want to argue is that it was the continued breakdown in a godly model of reform because of various policy feelings that was to be instrumental in government's emerging status view. And this was because state theory came to offer the Irish administration an alternative way of regulating political relationships in the Irish kingdom. In the first instance, the continued failure in Ireland to make provision for the dissemination of God's word was to suggest to Parliament and his associates that government could no longer look to grace to reform Elizabeth's Irish subjects. That My research says that Sydney had tried to drive forward with a large reform plan to make available God's word, but with the reluctance from Elizabeth and um, financial um, uh, and financial problems within the Irish church, he was unable to do this. And The administration also faced... A second problem, in that a growing counter-reformation threat, as exemplified in the Baltic Glass and Nugent's writings, raised the possibility that the Irish would not only be inclined towards sin, but that an increasingly open and defiant Irish Catholicism might lead Ireland's inhabitants into a more active civil disobedience. Here, government not only had to consider how it might keep sinful man in check, but how it could affect some level of political um, unity if the community was actively divided in conscience. I want to suggest that an emerging abstract notion of the state would provide some form of the solution as it was to allow the problem of political or civil disorder to be framed in terms of the maintenance of sovereign authority in the state as opposed to the question of the common good and man's reform, something that had become a remote possibility from a reformed Protestant perspective in the absence of a functioning Reformation church. In this respect, Berbicone is focus mainly on the application of Italian Republicanism in Ireland, though there are aspects of um, absolutism being applied as well, though I'm not sure if I get time to get to that point. Um, and what I want to suggest is what Italian Republican writing uh, with its focus on the external structures of the state as opposed to the ultimate good or God was to provide some sort of an answer. An Irish government was to draw heavily on Italian Republican theorists who suggested that society should be atomised to the extent that no one individual could amass enough power to challenge the state. In particular, Perrett and his associates were to looked to reduce the size of Irish lordships to make many lords simple freeholders. Broadly speaking... An abstract notion of the state was to provide a way to recast political relationships as involving the opposites and apparatus of the state as opposed to personal fidelity or loyalty between a subject and the prince. And here I'm drawing on the work of J.G.A. Pocock in The Machiavellian Moment, who, in a pre-Reformation context, talking about re- Italian Republican writing, argues that it was consciously responding to the perceived absence of grace in political life. He suggests that because the moral renovation of Italy's city-states had been prophesied by the radical observant Friar Severo Roda, that the collapse of Italy's city-states meant Italian Republicans faced a situation where nature, grace, prophecy and renovation I had failed which was why they came to focus on the idea of the maintenance of sovereign authority in the state and the irish situation equates with this with the lack of provision made for god's word so therefore the absence of grace within irish political life um, so what i'm going to put forward here then um, is a reassessment of parrot's approach to the question of Irons reform which has tended to be positioned as part of a long-running attempt to put in place an english model of land tenure and law Instead, what I want to suggest is that from the outset, the Lord Deputy also understood the civil disorder he confronted in Ireland in terms of both Reformation thought and an emerging status critique. Moreover, and more broadly, I want to suggest that what the Irish policy debate provides us with is a window onto the principal assumptions which underlay early modern ideas about good government and a well-ordered polity. For instance, whilst the development of secular state theory has been positioned by scholars such as Quentin Skinner within a Reformation-counter-Reformation context, the question of conscience in Greece has been presented as largely incidental to a wider debate over whether or not a citizen or subject could have a role in government. The application of state theory in Ireland, I will argue, suggests that the question of conscience and grace was in reality far more instrumental in the development of status thought than is usually assumed. So probably good to move on to a little bit of actually some textual evidence. Um, I'm not going to recount Perrett's own... Um, religious reform programme which he outlines in 1584 which drags in a lot of um, Sydney's other policies in terms of the reform of church finances and the making available of God's word in Irish. Though by this stage nothing had happened for about two decades so what I want to say is that there was a growing need to therefore reconsider how political relationships could be regulated in Ireland in the absence of grace and conscience as unifying factors in the godly polity which was an abstract impersonal notion of the state was to provide some answer to. For example, in a 1581 treatise which had been written as part of an early bid for the deputieship, Perrett was quickly to demarcate an area for political action which would not rely on grace and conscience as stabilising forces in political relationships. Perrett did open with a restatement of the reformed Protestant position and he asked rhetorically, "How can a people so estranged from God and their duty to him have any grace to know their lawful prince and their duty to her? But he quickly turned to explain that whilst many men do allege many causes hereof as the want of service of God and due knowledge of justice, he thought that it was Irish government's habit of tolerating rebellious behaviour, in other words government's inability to maintain the integrity of its authority, that was the core of the problem. On this basis, Paird was to go on to examine the way in which political authority was distributed throughout the Irish kingdom, and he was to echo Italian Republican writers in that he was to look to ensure that no one individual had enough authority to challenge the structure and authority of the state. Pers outlook was also to be informed by an absolutist strain in Irish government thinking, which in seeing government's authority as being distinct from the wider political community left little room for autonomous lordly behaviour. For example... The prospective Lord Deputy was to suggest that Irish lordships should be dramatically reduced in physical size in order to make lordships components of the Irish state, not rivals to it. He comments using the term state that Your Majesty's state um, may be more followed and depended upon than, t- than hitherto it has been, and the lords of the counties less. Um, Paird was also to to propose a novel change to the form of composition agreements. He was like Sidney to look to persuade Ireland's major lords to forgo bastard feudal practices and collect an annual fixed rent from the subjects within their feudal jurisdiction instead of billeting their armed retainers throughout their lordships. He suggested, however, that the composition agreements government came to negotiate should not only involve the crown and a given lord, but that tripartite indentures should be drawn up, whereby the agreement would be betwixt the queen, the lord and the freeholder. The Irish state, therefore, would recognise the position of the freeholder within a given lordship and therefore free him from paying feudal dues directly to the lord. This would undermine any sense in which a given lord held authority beyond his own manor or freehold property and so any sense in which he held authority independently of the crown. As Parrott himself commented, the freeholders would as a result be at the devotion of the state. Peart was also to go on to examine how the institutional structures of government could be shifted, such as presidencies in the Lord Ship, to allow the institutions of government to press down more directly on the inhabitants. He also, in a second 1581 treatise, was to raise the notion of precary imperium, the sense that um, imperium needs to be firmly located with the prince and the state, not precariously shared out among semi-autonomous feudal and Gaelic Irish lordships, something that Roy Rattle has recently noted. Before then moving to how Perrot begins to apply these ideas um, in terms of his dealing with Gaelic Irish lords and um, Old English lords, I want to go on to talk a little bit about some of the political philosophy which was to begin to be outlined um, in 1584, 85, 86. So as early as 1581 then, Perrot had already begun to look for an alternative model for the political community in Ireland in light of government's failure to further godly reform. Furthermore, when we consider more directly the reception of Italian Republican writing within Irish government circles, within the work of Geoffrey Fenton, the Irish Secretary of State, or Ludowick Brisket, also known as Ludowicko Brisketto, the former clerk to the Council under Grey, we see more clearly the extent to which secular state theory was directly conditioned by the possibility that God's grace would be absent from Irish political life. For instance, In the absence of grace, it was not only the possibility of man's reform that became remote, political events also began to lose their meaning. For J. G. A. Pocock, this is reflected in the emphasis in Italian republicanism on the idea of fortune or fortuna as the force which symbolises pure, uncontrolled and unlegitimate contingency. In other words, fortuna was an acknowledgement of what the world looked like if grace and providence were no longer viable ways of understanding what happened on a day-to-day basis. In this respect, the state was to be presented as the one identifiable constant in a world with little discernible order, as in, without redemption and reform as a discernible policy objective, maintaining the authority of the state would provide those in government with an animus for political action, hence the distinction drawn in Italian republicanism between virtue, as in the knowledge of what is truly good, and virtue as in the ability to take sound political decisions which would maintain the state. So the dichotomy between a world governed by Greece and a world without Greece is vividly displayed in Fenton's own translations of European political treatises. An important, um, so as discussed, well, Fenton's treatise first of all on a form of Christian policy, 1574, and a discourse of the civil wars and late troubles in France, 1569, was to present God's word in grace as critical agents in societal reform. His translation of Gugardini's Storia d'Italia, however, published as The History of Gugardini, 1579, set out an account of the decline of Italy's city republics where the eventual collapse of cities and institutions was presented as inevitable. As Skinner notes in respect to Gugardini's history, we encounter a greatly increased sense of the imbalance between fortune's power and man's capacities. In other words, Fenton was very much aware of a near-godless conceptualisation of political life it is ludowick brisket however who was still in ireland when parrot assumed the lord Ship in 1584 who was to directly relate the perceived absence of greece in the irish polity to the application of status thought this is in his discourse of civil life published in 1606 though it is written probably around the mid to late um, 1580s so not only was Brisket's discourse a much embellished translation of Gian baptiste Giraldi, Cynthia's trade Dialoga Della Vita Civile and other Italian treatises, which I don't know what they are, um, Brisket set the work firmly within the context of Ireland in the mid-1580s. This translation took the form of a dialogue between Brisket himself and a set of friends who arrived um, to his house on the outskirts of Dublin, which included Dr John Long, the Archbishop of Armand, the poet Edmund Spencer, one of the dedicatees to the treatises um, Arthur Gray, um, the infamous Lord Deputy. And um, and as with Brisket's um, correspondence as clerk to the council under Grey, his translation was from the outset to be rooted in the language of the state. Brisket explained that in translating Cynthia's treatise, it could not be said that on leaving office he was retiring myself from the state. And he was also to raise immediately in the dedicatory letter to the work the perceived the received view on the centrality of grace in political life. Brisket explained that the discourse would help bring the reader to attain to the further perfection which... The profession of a Christian requireth, and that everlasting felicity, which assisted with what God's grace thou may assuredly purchase. As the treatise developed, however, Brisket was soon to raise the perennial problem faced by reformed Protestants in Ireland of how exactly man could be reformed. And significantly in the dialogue, it was the Archbishop of Armagh, John Long, who was to set out the reformed Protestant position. This was very much in character, since throughout Paris' deputorship, Long was to continue to argue that without grace and the action of grace in man's conscience, man would not be brought to know what was truly good. And in the treatise, the Archbishop was to adopt an extreme reformed Protestant position. His character was, was to suggest that because of original sin, man was incapable of properly contributing to political life. He argued that basically Felicity was only available and um, in heaven, and that um, our first father Adam by his disobedience had deprived himself and all his posterity of the infinite goodness and mercy of God critically Brisket's character in the dialogue did not address did not disagree with Long, but very much in line with Italian Republican writing, he simply um, shifted focus away from the question of how man might attain knowledge of what was truly good, and he was to concentrate instead on how man might be brought to act in a political setting. In other words, the dialogue was set up in a way to allow Brisket to openly sidestep, or even dismiss the reformed Protestant position. He was to exclaim that we are here to discourse of moral philosophy, we will for this time put divinity to silence. Now, just to briefly summarize Brisket's um, discourse, because I want to get on to talking about um, Perth's application um, of these ideas. First of all, Brisket. Sets out the well worn Renaissance motif of Vita Activa and Vita Contemplativa, and he draws on stoic aspects of Italian Republicanism, emphasizing the need for man to control his passions with his intellect so he could take sound political action in a world governed by fortuna. Some quite nice quotes, but I leave those where they are. Brisket was also to make a distinction between virtue as a moral disposition which was dependent on knowledge what on knowledge of what is good, and virtue as in the ability to take sound political decisions which would not necessarily be clearly moral in character and here we get the sense we, he talks about the name Dullam was given to by Latins not to the singular fight between man and man but the general war between two nations or states and in discussing what might lead a man to take up arms in defense of the, de- of the state he went on to define treason as an offense against the prince's person which should be seen as an offense against the public state which reposes upon the person of the Prince explaining that injuries of private men is something very different indeed, as in looking and saying that the the, the remit for political action was directed towards sovereign authority and the impersonal state, not necessarily towards the common good, so whilst brisket. My uh, research argues, I had argued very early on in the dialogue that the topic of discussion was to demonstrate how man could be brought to know and act for the summum bonum, or the ultimate good, which we would rightly equate with God. By the end of the treatise, the ultimate good had become instead the state. And this was set in the idea of Fortuna as a world of political order not governed or controlled by grace. So in the first instance, secular state theory, I would argue, was to offer Irish government a way to restructure the political community so that stability in political relationships would not depend on grace and conscience. It was also to offer Irish government a clear animus for political action, where in the absence of the spiritual reform of the political community, it would be the good of the state as opposed to knowledge of what was truly good, which would inform government policy. And these ideas were on to underlie Perrot's approach to the Irish problem from the outset of his deputationship. In the first instance, when problems arose in Ulster because um, the Scots sorely boy MacDonald had started once again to press his claims in the province with the breakdown in order with turley who kneeled the head of the Neil clan, attempting to exploit instability, Perret was tasked with stabilising political relationships with Ulster, within Ulster and he was to immediately present the problems faced by government there in abstract status terms as involving the sovereign authority possessed by the Irish state. In a letter in August 1584, the Lord Deputy argued that the evasions of the Scots posed a serious threat to Her Majesty's State and Imperial crown, i.e. her sovereign authority. And he explained that if we should receive an overthrow, it would be hard for Her Majesty to recover in time again and that his correspondence would be dotted with um, the use of the term state. At one, Imperat's um, immediate reaction was to simply raise a large army and he marched to Ulster to expel the Scots. But his longer-term solution was to divide Ulster into three, giving Ternaglenic control of one-third and giving jurisdiction over the other two-thirds, respectively, to the Baron of the and Nicholas Bagnall, the leading Crown Officer in the province. At one level, then, Pairn recognised the status quo in the province and that they sought to negotiate agreements with the three main players, and all three agreed to maintain troops in readiness to repel the Scots in future. But the question of where sovereign authority lay remained the guiding principle. Critically, the troops that Turlick and Dungallon would command would not be their own clients and military retainers, but instead they would command men supported by a composition rent that would be collected throughout the province. Now, the composition agreements were not yet tripartite, as they were to become in cause, as Pert had proposed in his 1581 treatise, as the rents were to be collected in kind, and as Hiram Morgan notes, this effectively meant that the troops were billeted throughout the province. Nevertheless, the arrangements Perth hoped to reach followed the underlying principle behind his 1581 proposal in that both major lords and minor lords were all to contribute directly to the upkeep of these troops. Technically, therefore, the authority of Turlic and Dungannon would possess would not be reflective of any indigenous claim to independent authority that could be associated with Gaelic clan titles or feudal lordship. As it would would not be their own clients and military retainers, they would bill it throughout the province. We even get the sense in which Perrot, though this is a bit of propaganda, um, was to talk about these um, agreements in terms of the troops would be at the service of the state and be always at the commandment of the Lord Deputy. And He was later to comment that dividing of so great a territory as Tyrone is would be very necessary to the state. Furthermore, um, the Lord Deputy, in his response to the Ulster Crisis, was to draw on the Stoic Republican values as set out in Brisket's Discourse on Civil Life. And he was to argue that those in government needed to find a mean point between their various passions in order to take sound political decisions. This is in response to Elizabeth's usual reluctance um, to uh, support bold reforming initiatives. He explained that I cannot be very sorry to see careless, carelessness in matters of the greatest weight, together magnanimity and contempt of perilous good. But it is better and holdeth out longest and surest, when it is accompanied with wariness and foresight, whereby dangers are known as they are, and the eater avoided without confusion or and amazedness the ordinary companions of on circumspection. Perrot also presented the agreements he had made with Turlick O'Neill and the Baron of Dungannon as responding to a political situation governed by fortune. He explained that if, uh, uh, to Elizabeth that if she did not support the agreements he had made, if for want of performance of any plot, anything should fall out, contrary to the present state appearance, whereof yet I see no causes of doubts, I, it may please your majesty graciously and gravely to consider how subject the best estates are, much more this torn one, to mutations and chains. Now to project forward just briefly and to conclude. Perrot in his the dealings then with... Um, sort of the, the, the O'Reilly's um, in Ulster, also with the two major Connaught lords, the Earl of Clangricard and the Earl of Thomond, was to try, out, first of all with the O'Reilly's, was to divide out the Gaelic lordship and to create freeholders in line with this um, status idea. Um, he was also to look to um, introduce tripartite indentures in Connaught, so that um, he made the minor lords freeholders, so dividing up sovereign authority um, between everyone so that they couldn't challenge the structures and authority um, of the state he was also to constantly in terms of dealing with um, parliament then when there were issues in terms of divisions of conscience um when he was to try to introduce um penal legislation he again was to try and shift discussion away from talking about grace and god's word to then talk and present the problem in terms of sovereign authority um, um and the state as a way of um controlling um a situation which which increasingly appeared not to be governed by god's word um and grace um, So just what I'm trying to argue then in my research is that that um, paired was to approach the reform of Ireland's lordships by drawing broadly on Italian republican writing, and that he sought to atomise Irish lordships to ensure that sovereign authority was firmly located within the apparatus and offices of the state and not with Ireland's lords. And the question of where sovereign authority lay in the Irish state also became the guiding principle in political relationships in political action, because in the absence of Greece and a, and a world governed by mutations and change, this provided a discernible and definable policy objective which was distinct from the increasingly difficult question of man's reform and the common good. And I think that we can project this forward, first of all, in a revision of Skinner's own work, in terms of looking at Ireland as a a case study in the principles of government, where you have a breakdown in the political relationships, and absence of grace, and it shows clearly that the whole idea of the state and of sovereign authority as opposed to the common good was to being applied in a world of ideas which has started to collapse with this sort of reform Protestant emphasis on free will and grace which couldn't really be solved and we also see this then in Ireland and two things I just mentioned is that in Sir William Herbert's Cro- um, Croftus de. Survey Day Hibernia, in that he applies the work of Eustace Lipsius, where Lipsius begins in the six books of politics by talking about conscience and unity of conscience as being the foundation of the politic, But he then does a quick allusion to then talk about sovereign authority in the state to solve this problem. And then it's all summed up in Spencer's work whereby we see in the fairy queen the idea that you want to reform man through grace and God's word, which can't happen in Ireland. So what does Spencer do? He advises a a status policy in the view of the present state of Ireland to make up for this failure to provide grace and then to conclude with my title, which I always forget to do, my attempt on an ambiguous play on words, governing in a state of grace? That Irish government had looked to reform the polity by bringing man to a state of grace. Man wasn't in a state of grace, therefore we get the secular state. Thank you.